again. We come here and celebrate this joy and privilege to be together. Hope you had a great Christmas celebration with your families. Today we're going to finish up our study of Peter's confession there in Matthew 16, where we have been noting six truths of a true confession. And this week is our third and final week to do that, a wonderful way to wrap up the year, if you ask me. Then as we get to the new year, I actually consulted the elders, the other pastors. I decided to spend a few weeks speaking to you, teaching you about our confession, our confession here at NBC. Of course, we have a formal written confession that we wrote some years ago. Uh, Essentially, it's based on what's called the New Hampshire Confession. We looked at other confessions as well. Various denominations, churches, organizations, movements, they also have written confessions. And the basic idea is what we see here, what we believe to be true, what we build our ministry upon, who we are, what we are about here at NBC. I think it's important to go through once in a while as uh, we worship God in uh, the church. So we're going to do that. We're not going to go through our confession line by line. We we are going to look at and answer the question of who we are, what we teach, what we believe here at NBC. Now, before we do that, though, today we're going to look at Peter. Peter is articulating, officially, officially declaring his faith in Jesus Christ. He has a scripture. He knows Christ. And so he's making a confession of faith. Again, we thought it would be good for us to do that as a church, but before that, we're going to finish looking at this wonderful time, wonderful time studying the confession of Peter here. All of this comes from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Let me read this to you as we begin this morning. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the Word of God. Let me begin today with a little bit of history, church history or Christian history. The church, of course, was an individual single church to start out with, uh, right there in the single city there in Jerusalem. You can read about this in Acts chapters 1 and 2. One single church led by the apostles who acted as the initial elders of that church. It was a massive church. Thousands upon thousands of people had been saved there at Pentecost just after Jesus ascended. Before Jesus ascended, you remember, Jesus reiterated the Great Commission in greater detail. They were to make disciples not just of those around them there in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. 
So it wasn't very long before the apostles and many others would start to take the message of Christ and spread the Word of God, now including this exciting news that the Messiah had indeed come. The, the Messiah had come. He had provided His righteousness. He had provided atonement for sin. He had prevailed over sin and death and then ascended to His throne in heaven. And this Messiah was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That message spread. People were saved in various cities all over the Roman Empire and even beyond. As they were saved, sometimes they were, a lot of them were saved in, in one community. They would form then their own church. Sometimes that church would be a wholesale conversion of a synagogue. We think this is what happened in the city of Berea. Literally, literally, the entire synagogue, the elders, beginning with the elders on down, the entire synagogue was converted to Christ. That synagogue would be converted into a church with its elders and deacons already in place. Other times, in fact, I think most of the time, the religious Jewish leaders would reject the gospel. They wouldn't study like the Bereans did. And so the church would form outside of the synagogue, usually in homes, or in other places outside of that synagogue, but these people were converted. Those churches would be formed, and those churches would have leaders, elders, pastors, and deacons. Well, as time went on, a very organic, natural thing began to happen in terms of the broader church, churches across the world. And that was this. In larger metropolitan areas, the church that would form there would, would often be bigger than those in the small villages across the Roman Empire. The pastors of those churches, usually the, the main teaching elder would be someone who had been quite influential. In fact, he may have trained up young men and sent them out to start the churches in smaller areas and smaller villages. And so over time, these pastors in these larger churches and larger cities would have a significant amount of influence, something very similar to what we see even in Protestant Christianity today. We see this very thing happening. We see pastors of larger churches and larger metropolitan areas, and they train up young men. They send them out. Those young men start churches. They look to this man as their disciple, as the one who influences them in terms of their church. This is something that's very natural, very organic. And these pastors of these larger churches and larger cities had greater and greater influence as time went on, so much so that those pastors played a central role in sort of making decisions for the church. You see this early on in the life of the church, Acts chapter 15, right? There's a, a question, a theological question about uh, Judaism. How, what, what does Judaism have to do with Christianity. Should someone become a Jew first before they can become a Christian? That was a question for a lot of people. Should they observe the Jewish laws, become a Jew, convert as a Jewish proselyte, and then become a Christian? Or can they become a Christian straight from being a Gentile? Of course, they'd answered that question there in Acts chapter 15. They gathered there at the main church, and, and there by that time, you don't just have the apostles as elders. You have other men who were not apostles, such as James, a, a different James, not one of the apostle James, but James, the brother of Jesus, was a leading preacher, probably the, the lead preacher at the church at Jerusalem, and, and he played a central role in making sure that their doctrine was protected, that Gentiles could indeed be converted without becoming Jews first. They could just simply repent 
and follow Christ. They did not need to follow the Jewish Old Testament, Old Covenant laws. Now, this is very natural and understandable that these larger churches and pastors of larger churches would have great influence. And in those early days, we don't see any kind of example, and especially in the Bible, of, of some sort of pastor taking advantage of that position, that role of influence, assuming authority where he shouldn't have. We don't see uh, James, the, the leader at the church in Jerusalem, taking, assuming that he has authority in all the churches. But as time went on, that innocence would disappear. For one thing, the, the leading church switched from Jerusalem because of persecution, it switched from Jerusalem to the church at Rome. That was the largest and most influential church and would have the, the longest tenured pastor or the oldest pastor, a pastor with great influence. And, and again, over time, that bishop, which simply means pastor, that bishop began to assume greater and greater authority. Over the centuries, the churches across the world recognized that, that bishop, that pastor at the church at Rome as, as really the leading pastor of all the churches. In fact, they, they began to see that so much, they began to call him father or papas in the Latin, which interpreted is a common word you hear today, pope. They began to call that pastor at the church at Rome, pope. Well, again, especially in those early years, many of those Rome pastors would reject any kind of broader authority. Even if they had great influence, they would reject any kind of broader assumption of authority. They, they would use their influence. They would speak to issues. They would help the churches theologically, but they did not feel themselves to have greater authority than any other pastor in their churches. But of course, as time went on, more and more of those pastors at Rome embraced, flaunted, and abuse, uh, abuse their popularity, their influence. They began to deeply covet the, the power and the authority that they could wield, not just in their church, but in churches abroad. Eventually, many, even dozens of successive pastors there at Rome saw themselves not just as the pastor of Rome, but as the pastor of all the churches, and, and finally they put that assumption in writing. They codified this idea that the pastor of the church at Rome was indeed the Pope. He has the authority over not just his church, but over all the church. Well, that's a quick and sloppy history of the papacy. What I want you to see is that as this was being established, popes and other people began to look for passages in the Bible that would justify, that would vindicate their creation of this office of pope. That's a bad way to do theology, by the way. You know, you live, you act, you do what you want to do, and then you try to find Scripture to, to validate that action. That's a bad way of theology. But that's, in fact, what they did. And the number one passage they would go to is this one. They began to use this passage to justify, to vindicate this papal institution. Specifically, verses 18 and 19. You've heard this reasoning, I'm sure. They say right there, Jesus gives the authority to Peter. Peter is the foundation of the church. Peter is the pope of the church. And then there are successive popes who are the foundation of the church. And they are the ones, these popes essentially, the pope is the one, and this would be in line with Catholic teaching even today, the pope is the one who would let people in and out of heaven, bar people from heaven, let people into heaven. That 
is the church's authority to do, according to especially the older Catholic church, so they've wavered from that in recent years. Now, it's not hard to see that this interpretation of the establishment of the papacy and the chain of successive popes throughout the years, this is a stretch from what Jesus says here. You just read these verses and you won't come up with some bizarre, convoluted institution of the pope like we have today. In fact, no one interpreted the, this, these verses that way for hundreds of years. In fact, the first thousand years were not interpreted that way until they started to really try to justify the papacy they began to interpret it that way. And I'm going to get to this a little bit later. The point I do want to make is though that, that interpretation is false, though they have come up with a false interpretation of that passage, they did recognize something that is true about this passage. I think that's really probably true about most falsehoods. There's an element of truth there that makes you realize, and there is an element of truth of that idea that, that what happened that day when, when Peter made his confession and Jesus replied to Peter, what, what happened that day was not something just personal about Peter's personal confession. Something big happened that day, something universal, something even eternal was happening in that moment. And Jesus, in His own words, as He replies to Peter's confession, you realize this is not just about, you know, Peter's personal relationship with God. This is something big is happening here. Jesus Himself is bringing attention to that. And so Jesus, after that confession is made, He points to God's sovereignty. He points to the future establishment and, and growth and building of the church. He points to church authority, the kingdom of heaven. That's why I've called this the eternal part of the confession. Just to make it a little clearer, I've broken it down into three parts. What are the truths of a true confession? The first was the internal aspect of a true confession. That was point number one. True confession stands against common opinion. It comes from the heart, and we saw that as we look at the language and what Peter says. That's numbers one and two. Then looking at Peter's actual confession, we've called this the external truths of a true confession. What doctrine did he actually profess? What truths did he externally proclaim? Number three, a true confession believes Jesus is the Messiah. And number four, a true confession affirms Jesus' deity. Now today, like I said, we're looking at that broad picture, the eternal truths of a true confession. What are they? Number five, if you've been taking notes, you can follow along. True confession acknowledges its divine source. True confession acknowledges its divine source. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. No matter how you look at this, no matter how you slice what Jesus says here, clearly Jesus is saying Peter's profession of faith in Christ, Peter's confession did not arise out of Peter's own good choices, his own mind, his own strength, his own willpower, his own profession. All of it was of God. Peter, you didn't come to this on your own. God gave you the truth. 
and the faith then to confess that truth. And I thought to myself, maybe we need to alter our evangelism process. Someone professes Christ and instead of praising them for the great decision-making they've had, instead of assuring them of, boy, now that you've prayed that prayer, you're in forever, I think that's sort of a bad basis of eternal security. Instead of doing that, instead saying, by the way, give God praise that you've made this decision. For just like Peter, maybe we should say, just like Jesus saying to Peter, maybe we should say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God's Spirit has revealed this to you. People are regenerated. They make a profession not by the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but by the will of God. Some weeks ago, you remember, we paused our study of Matthew and looked at this idea, the larger idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, the responsibility of man, and how this all interacts. And if this is something you struggle with, perhaps you can go back and listen to some of those messages. I got to thinking this week, one of the best illustrations of God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility is what we believe to be true about Scripture, how Scripture was inspired. Think with me for a moment. When Paul or Peter or John or Matthew or any of the other biblical writers picked up his pen and wrote Scripture, was it their words? Yes, it was. Did they make decisions and choices about wording? Yes, it was. Was it in their context? Yes, it was. Was it in their language? Yes, it was. Was it their doctrine that they held in their heart? Yes, it was. All of that. But the doctrine of inspiration tells us that though they were the human author, there was an author that was behind them, and it was God. Ultimately, it was God who was authoring the Word of God. Every last word, yes, the the, the human author thought about and decided on and made the decision, but ultimately, it was God who was inspiring them all along. Now, I can't explain how that miracle happened, the miracle of inspiration. Neither can I explain how the miracle of salvation happens. Yes, a person makes a choice. Yes, a person makes a confession of faith. Yes, a person repents and trusts Christ and has faith. But ultimately, according to Jesus' own words there, ultimately, it is God in him, both the willing and the working of his good pleasure. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling Peter. And by extension, all the apostles there, and by extension, all disciples everywhere for all of time. When you profess Christ, when you finally choose God, when you have faith and repent and follow Christ, when you make that life-altering decision, give praise to God, for it is God in you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. Now, the reason Jesus says this is He's zooming way out. Just as with any decision to follow Christ, if you, if you zoom way in, yes, it's a personal decision, yes, it's a, it's a choice that a person makes, but if you zoom out and, and zoom all the way out to an eternal perspective, you realize God is God. And if God is God, He must determine everything. He has a massive plan that cannot be altered, and He is not changed by any human. He is not altered by any human decision. He does not have to adjust His plan constantly based upon what humans do. Peter's decision to confess Christ... Jesus zooms way out and shows Peter this is all a part of God's massive, beautiful plan. All the way from the movement of the gospel across the world, the coming of Christ, eternity, but zooming all the way down even to even personal decisions of people to to confess Christ, this is all part of God's plan, and so let's give God credit. 
Let's give God credit for our salvation. Salvation, any faithfulness, any endurance, any joy, any walking in the Spirit, it's all of God. It's a part of His magnificent plan, and so we should worship Him for it, that He has included us on the positive side of His plan. He didn't have to. He was not obligated to. We didn't do anything to merit and to, to put us in, in salvation, and God said, well, I want the good ones, not the bad ones, and, and, and we did the good stuff. No, we give God all the credit because we deserve what everyone deserves, and yet God has positioned us in terms of salvation on the saving side of things. The true confession does this. You know, it's interesting. I meet a lot of people, even in our own church, we have people who, who differ on the ideas of God's sovereignty and salvation and how it all works together, and people differ, uh, probably person by person differ, but, but I think something is true of just about any Christian, whether they would be squarely in a Calvinist camp or squarely in Arminian camp, they all give praise to God. A true confessor, a true Christian would say, you know, in the end, I give all my worship to God. I give God all the credit. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing right here. Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't come, up, come to this on your own. You didn't just conjure this up, this faith. It wasn't something that was your own, and God, you know, credited that to you. No, this is something that even God gave to you. A true confession does this. Without fail, it acknowledges its divine source. Well, we've come to the final part, number six, and we're going to spend some more time here because there's a lot of words here that sound strange to us. Number six, a true confession is the foundation, strength, and mission of the church. The true confession is the foundation, strength, and mission of the church. Just with that point is what got me thinking, maybe we ought to spend some time thinking about our own identity here as a church, our own profession and confession. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this sounds really strange to our ears. How should we interpret this? What's this all mean? Now, one of the reasons I began with the illustration of the papacy is, of course, they use this passage in particular, these two verses, to defend the idea of the papacy, that the church, particularly the Pope himself, is the one that grants people eternal life, and, and heaven sort of reacts to what the Pope is deciding and doing. The interpretation here is that Jesus is making Peter the first Pope. By saying he's the rock, he's the first Pope. Peter, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is the head of the church, has the authority to let people into heaven or bar people from heaven. Jesus, when He said, Peter, you you are Peter, and upon this rock, He meant Peter Himself was the rock, the head, the foundation of all the church. And then after Peter died, there was a succession of popes, one after the next, after the next, that had the same authority, same rights as Peter. Each one of these popes selected by a group of cardinals who announced their divine decision with smoke that billows out of the Vatican. Well, obviously, I don't think this passage has anything to do with the papacy. Like I said earlier, hundreds, even almost a thousand years, the church, the people of God did not interpret this passage that way at all. That, again, was devised later on as a defense of the papacy. 
And you can see this even in Scripture very clearly in that early church. As you read the Bible, they did not believe Peter was the Pope. They did not interpret this passage as though God, uh, through Jesus, was establishing the papacy. You can see this just by reading the Bible. And how do we know that? Well, just read the rest of the New Testament. First of all, Peter never appears to have any more authority than any other apostle. Yes, he's the first one to stand up and preach, but he's not treated as though he is this uh, auspicious leader among them, and he's bigger and better and more uh, authoritative than any other apostle. Even as the main preaching pastor there in the first church in Jerusalem, later he's seen as someone who's equal to all the pastors, even pastors who were not apostles. He does not relate to them as though he is the pope, as though he has some great authority over them and they ought to pay him homage. No papal deference, no kissing of his ring, no genuflecting as they come before the presence of Peter. Surely Peter was respected as an apostle, as a preacher, as a missionary. But you read that early testimony, you read the book of Acts, you realize that he's not respected as the pope. Secondly, Peter, another reason as you read Scripture why it's clear that Peter is not the pope, Peter, when he made theological church declarations, we find out reading the gospel testimony, reading the Bible testimony, that Peter could make mistakes. Peter, when he made a theological church declarations, he made mistakes. Now, not in his writing of Scripture, particularly First and Second Peter, with oversight probably over the book of Mark. There were no mistakes. That was inspired of God. But we do find out by reading other testimonies in Scripture that the book of Acts and the book of Galatians that Peter himself could make mistakes. He couldn't speak perfectly. He couldn't speak ex cathedra. He couldn't make pronouncements that were divine and equal to Scripture. As people say, as the Catholic Church says, the Pope can today. No, he made mistakes. Paul said he had to confront Peter to his face, Galatians 2, 11 to 21. When, when in, can you think of when a pope has made a mistake and someone comes up and confronts him and says, buddy, you've, you've messed up? Never. Peter was not treated like we treat the pope today. Even Peter in the next passage, the very next passage, just accentuates the whole idea. Here is Peter, Peter upon this rock. If he was made pope, he'd, Christ turns right around and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's fumbling and bumbling and making mistakes like anybody. Again, it's not that Peter wasn't respected. It's not that Peter shouldn't be uh, uh, referred to and, as uh, one of the first apostles, the, the greatest men that ever preached or ever lived, but Peter was not revered as the Pope. Third, as you read the Bible, the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, Peter disappears. You ever thought about that? The message of Acts is a story of the Holy Spirit at work in establishing that early church. You don't hear them in deference quoting Peter, referring to Peter, coming to Peter, seeing him as a pope, as the leader of all the church. In fact, he just sort of disappears. He still did work. He was a missionary. He ended up being martyred. But Peter was not seen as the pope. They don't keep going back to him, and he's the leader of all the church. He just sort of disappears. Why? Because he was not the pope. They didn't revere him as the pope. He was an apostle? Yes. He was a missionary? Yes. He was a preacher? Yes. But he was not the pope. There are other reasons, but let me give you a final reason why we know just by reading Scripture that the early church did not interpret this passage as though it made Peter the first pope. Fourth, when the Bible talks about the head of the church, 
Who is it? Jesus. The Bible talks about the cornerstone of the church. Who is it? We heard it earlier, read by Pastor Ryan. It's Jesus. When the Bible talks about the leaders of churches, what do we see? We see a man or men. Usually it's a group of men who are elders or pastors of the church, usually in plural form. But we don't read of anyone who who ascend to some sort of authority over all the church as an individual. We don't read of someone who, who has some sort of kind of foundational authority over everyone. You don't even read this of the apostles, other than the the scriptural foundation. They wrote the Bible. They, along with the the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they were authorized to to add the scripture, but they don't hold some kind of office. don't see any one individual apostle having some kind of office as head, founder, premier, chief of the whole church. And the only person we read that about is, of, of course, Jesus Christ Himself. Yes, there will be leaders inside specific churches. Yes, there naturally be some pastors who have greater influence because they've raised up other generations, but no one but Jesus is spoken of as over the whole church. Bottom line is, if you just pick up your Bible and read it, you will not come up with the super complicated process of this worldwide authority of a single man, the Pope. It's just not found in the pages of Scripture, not here, not anywhere else. Where do they come up with the idea of Popes, where does it all emerge? If the Bible doesn't mention it, where does the teaching and the, all these convoluted ideas about the Pope, where does that all emerge? Who wrote about that? In short, Popes wrote about that. They're the ones that came up with their own authority. Men holding that position. Originally as bishop or pastor in Rome, they became enamored with their own authority, their own power, they enamored with greater fame, greater power. They fought about it endlessly throughout the centuries divided the church. Then you have other popes. At one point, there are multiple popes of the church because everyone felt like they were the ones that had the right. You don't read about this in Scripture, and for a thousand years, the church did not interpret this passage as though this is about making Peter the pope. This was not used until they canonized it later on in the teaching of the church. Well, let's not get carried away any further with that. I thought I needed to address that because we have a lot of Catholic friends, and some of our Catholic friends maybe even truly believe in Christ, but they're confused, and maybe we even in our own minds are confused about the role of the Pope, and maybe we ought to show a little difference. What's going on here? Well, there's no such thing as the Pope in Scripture. It's not taught in this passage. I felt like it was important for us to talk about this. Well, if that's not the interpretation of this passage, what is? What's the right, proper interpretation? How are we to understand this passage? I think you have to answer three basic questions, and I think it'll make it easy if we answer these questions. One is, what is the rock? When Jesus says rock, what is the rock? What are the keys of the kingdom? What does that mean? And what is and who does the binding and loosing there? The rock, keys of the kingdom, Binding and loosing. We've got to answer those questions. So let's start with rock. There's a little play on words here. Jesus says, you are Peter. The name Peter actually means small rock. And usually it meant sort of a crumbling rock, a small rock. Just think of like a little, little piece of rock that had fallen off, fallen off another rock, a crumbled stone. Jesus says, you are Peter. And on this rock, but when he says on this rock, he uses a different word. And that word is not 
a small crumbling rock, that word is the word we would might use for bedrock. The rock he's talking about is not a, a rock that's crumbling and apart on its own. The rock that he's talking about is a permanent rock. Really, it's part of the mountain. Now, Jesus had talked about the bedrock before. Do you remember this? Chapter 7, Jesus had been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He'd been preaching and preaching and preaching, giving him all of his theology, his truth, giving, giving them his, his uh, doctrine, his morality. He'd been giving them all this, and he, and he finishes his teaching, he finishes his Sermon on the Mount with a little bit of an illustration. What was the illustration? The fool, he is the one who builds his life on the sand. When the rains come, when the floods come up, his life is collapsed, it's blown away. What about the wise man? Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Same word there, bedrock. The bedrock truths of Jesus' teaching. And the bedrock truths of Jesus' teaching is all centered around the identity of Jesus. So the central truth of the teaching of Jesus is that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Peter had listened. He'd learned from Christ. He had, by God's strength, understood. Jesus' teaching was not just a bunch of detached, meaningless morals. No, they all led somewhere. They led people to the point where they should confess the identity of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It should lead them to the message of the gospel, the central teaching of Christ. Really, this is what all Scripture, a good interpretation of all Scripture should lead us to, to the the identity and truth of Christ in the gospel. It should lead us all to, to see a Christ and believe Him and confess Him as the Messiah God as our Lord and Savior. Now, this makes sense of that phrase, on this rock, I will build my church. All the truths taught by Christ, culminating in His identity, culminating in the gospel, that is the foundation of the church, is it not? That Jesus is Savior and Lord, that Jesus is Messiah and Adonai or Yahweh. In Peter's words, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the truth that all the teaching of Christ points us to. The church, meaning all the people who follow Jesus, this is what they confess. True people, true disciples, that's really what the church is. I know that people have begun to use the idea of church for many different things, most popular today, I think the church is mainly sort of an evangelistic event where, whereby you sort of grow your business, right? You draw in more and more people by uh, doing flashy things. But in the Bible, the word church actually means the called out ones, the ones who've made this profession, and, and this is what they've done. This is the, the center of who they are, that they have done just as Peter did. You are my Christ, my Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that teaches us what the rock is. Christ says, I will build my church upon this bedrock. My teaching, culminating the identity 
of who I am and what I've come to do. Well, what about the keys of the kingdom of heaven? This one's a little bit easier. Think of someone who stands guard at a palace entrance. He's there. He has the keys to the kingdom, meaning he has the ability to open up the gates for whoever wants to come into the kingdom. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. In other words, you can open the kingdom for whoever would come in. But again, it's more than just Peter, right? It's not just Peter. Peter is speaking on behalf of all the disciples. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus said, who do you all or who do y'all say that I am? Someone say that's proof that Jesus was a southerner. Who do you all say that I am? So all the disciples, Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom to. And the disciples stand in as representative of all disciples everywhere for all of time. So in short, all of us, all disciples, we know the gospel. We have the message of Christ on our lips and in our hearts. We have the keys to the kingdom. We can open the kingdom. We can show someone the way. We can preach the gospel, maybe not from a pulpit, maybe just a conversation with your friends and family members who aren't saved. You can open the the glory of heaven to them. You can show them the truth of the gospel. You can make that profession to them and help them understand the kingdom of heaven. The great news that the Messiah God has arrived, He's provided salvation. All of us who believe that, all of us who are disciples of Jesus, we have the keys to the kingdom, and we can open it for anyone who would listen to us who would want to come into the kingdom. Now, to punctuate this point, Jesus then says that third idea that's sometimes confusing for us, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, this sounds strange to our ears. What you might find useful here is that version of the Bible called the Amplified Version. There's an older one, there's a more modern one. That version can be annoying in some ways, that version can be wrong some, sometimes, but they just sort of add a bunch of words to help you understand. Sometimes they're, they fail in some points, but other times, for instance, in this time, it's really helpful because what the Amplified Version does is it, it helps us understand what this idea of binding and loosing means, and it also helps us understand the tenses of the verbs here, which is all important. Binding and loosing are legal terms. Binding meaning declaring illegal, in violation, unlawful. You can think of bound for judgment. And loosing meaning the opposite, declaring someone free from judgment, good, righteous. So binding, declaring judgment, and loosing, declaring free from judgment. The verb tenses here, like I said, are all important because Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And and to our ears, reading it in the English, it really sounds like that whoever does binding on earth sort of plans out what's going on in heaven and sort of cause and effect. What happens on earth, someone binds something on earth, and then, then after that, something happens in heaven. But that is not true to the language here. If you're interested in linguistics... This, these words, binding and loosing, are in the perfect passive tense. They're perfect passive participles. Literally, this is what it says. Whatever you bind on earth shall having been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall having been loosed in heaven. In other words, and this is where the modern, modern amplified version helps us, 
Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. You got it? Heaven is not reacting. Heaven is not responding to our binding and loosing. We are just revealing the binding and loosing that is already true in heaven. When you give the gospel, some people receive the word with gladness and are freed from sin and judgment. Others reject, and they remain bound. Preaching of the gospel reveals those who are His and those who are not. It does not switch God's plans or change God's mind. We see that, again, in this tense of the verb, the passive perfect tense here, meaning it's already been done. Jesus gives Peter, and by extension, the disciples, and by extension, all disciples, the authority, not only to open the gates of heaven, but the authority to bind and loose. In fact, later in Matthew chapter 18, he repeats this idea of binding and loosing, and Jesus applies it to all disciples. All Christians have that authority. All Christians have the authority to fling open the gate of heaven, to announce the kingdom of heaven, and when they do that, by virtue of of announcing the gospel, they are binding and loosing. God's people who hear the voice of Christ, who hear their shepherd calling, they will come. They will be loosed from their sin. They will be freed. Those who reject will be bound. So if you put all these things together, it's very simple. It makes sense. The rock is the teachings of Jesus, the center of which is the gospel truth of His identity, Christ, God, Savior, Lord. All disciples have the keys to the kingdom. We have the knowledge. We have the right. We have the obligation to open wide the gates of heaven and invite all to believe in Christ and come in. In doing that, in our announcing the message of Christ, we are saying if you believe in Jesus Christ, that He is Messiah and Lord, if you repent and follow Him, if you follow His teaching, you are loosed. You are free from sin. You are free from God's judgment. If you refuse to repent... If you refuse to have faith, you are bound in your sin. And then people respond. Heaven's plan is revealed. It's carried out. We don't know whom God has chosen. We have no idea who's going to be saved, who's not going to save. We only have the responsibility to announce the gospel. When we do that faithfully, we will find people who live in rejection, and they are bound. And we will find people who receive it and trust in Christ. This reminds us of the passage later in Acts, Acts chapter 13, the Christians are preaching the gospel everywhere, and it says in verse 48 of Acts 13, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the the word of the Lord, and then it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The preaching of the gospel revealed the binding and loosing. It revealed those who were appointed to eternal life. Those people believed, and they came into the kingdom of Christ. Well, I hope this helps us understand this passage. The church is built on the truths and the teaching of Jesus Christ, centrally His identity, the message of the gospel. Those truths grant every Christian, beginning with Peter, the keys to the kingdom. And as we announce and share these truths, God's sovereign plan from heaven is revealed. Some are freed eternally, some remain bound in sin are destined for judgment. Now, the very last verse, we've covered this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Jesus says, essentially, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. I've sort of beat this horse several times already. 
It seems counterintuitive to what's going on, Jesus talking really evangelistically here. But as we've said before, Jesus in His ministry wanted to time His death properly. And so He always sort of had the evangelistic reins, the reins of evangelism in His hands all throughout His ministry. He wanted to control what was happening evangelistically. He didn't just send the, the apostles out and just say, now, you're, now I've sent you out, you're done, just take it out. I've given you all that I know. No, He brings them back he trains them, and He restricts their evangelism while He was there on earth. But this was the beginning, and Jesus demonstrates, as Peter announces this, this is the foundation, the strength, the mission of the church. This is how I'm going to build my church, through the teachings announced, or the kingdom announced. And we get to the end of the gospel of Matthew, and what does Jesus do? He lets go of those reins, and He sets those men free to go over all the earth and announce the gospel. Well, right here was the very beginning. This is the foundation. I'm always appalled when churches do everything they can to avoid the doctrine of the Bible, to avoid the teaching of Christ, to shy away from the declarations, the confession of truth. They shy away from Jesus' teaching, and the idea is, well, we've got to get more people in, and Jesus can be sort of offensive. The Bible can have some sort of things that people disagree on. We don't want to divide that. Can't ever figure out what these churches believe. You go on their websites, and you have to dig and dig and dig, and maybe you'll never find what, what they really believe. What's worse than that, though, is Christians who do the same. They avoid doctrine. They avoid truth. They avoid thinking, worshiping God with their minds. They do the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our privilege, it is our right, and it is our obligation and our joy to declare the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore everyone everywhere on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We joyously open wide the gates of the kingdom of heaven and, and beckon all who would come in to come in. And if you're here today, maybe watching or maybe sitting in here, and you have not declared with Peter, you are my Savior, my God, I announce to you the kingdom today. You can be free from your sin. You can be free from God's judgment. If only you would believe and repent. I declare to you today, you can be free. But if not, you will still be bound. Well, let's pray that God would use His Word to do His work today. Father, we thank You for Your wonderful Word. We thank You for this, this foundation of the church, really, that defines who we really are, our objective as, as missionaries all across the world. Many of us may not ever get the opportunity to really go very far from where we live or, or spend very much time beyond where we live, but Lord, You have called us to declare Your excellencies, to make known the teachings of Christ, specifically the, the gospel of Christ, His identity. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to do that today. And, Lord, as we look back at the, 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 beginning of, the beginnings, really, of the church, of the people who are called out to do this very job, beginning with Peter and the disciples and moving on through the years with all of us, and I pray that we would be faithful to announce the truth of Christ. And, Lord, for those who do not know You, for those who have not had faith and have not yet repented, burden them with their sin. Show them 
how awful that bondage is and where that bondage leads to death and judgment eternally. Open their eyes to the fact that Jesus, through His life and death and resurrection, has provided freedom from that bondage. And Lord, may they come into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ today. We ask all this in His name. Amen.